Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about the myth of a Christian nation, and then we're joined by neurotheologian Dr. Jim Wilder. You're listening to The Common Good. everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Happy Global Leadership Summit Day, by the way, Brian. Are you uh, are you caught up in any of that? I am not. I saw some people, including yourself, tweeting uh, on it, but I, I have not seen anything. I was tweeting on it or about it or however you put about that. <laughs> uh, always, always good stuff over at GLS. Real briefly, though, before we dive in to today's show, a couple places you can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. We not only post articles there, even articles we don't talk about, like the No Drama Llama that people are bringing to protests. Uh, you can also send us messages about future shows if you have ideas or suggestions. Find us at 1160hope.com slash the common good or wherever it is you get podcasts. And I do mean wherever. And if you wouldn't mind subscribing, rating, and reviewing, all of that does help us out a whole lot. Before we dive into what I imagine is going to be somewhat of a serious conversation, yeah. how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I've got to describe my evening last night. I'll try to give you the Reader's Digest version. So my son, I've told you before, he's playing travel baseball. They had a playoff game last night. If they lost, their season was going to be over. Uh, and uh, I want you to picture this. They are down a run, bases loaded, two outs, uh, last inning, top of the seventh, okay? Wow. And th- this awesome kid, Casey, he's a great player, but not a power hitter, okay? Comes up, and he has an 0-2 count on him. And start, he fouls in one away, fouls another one away, fouls another one away, and then hits an homer, a grand slam to opposite field. The place went crazy. Oh, awesome. <laughs> People are like crying on the sideline. It was the most, it was one of the coolest things I've ever seen. And our team won and we'll move on. But this kid's never hit a homer. He's a great player. He's not like a scrub, but he's just not a power hitter. And all right. of a sudden, oh man, he was probably, ball. he's going to tell that story for 40 years. It was so fun. It was really fun. So I'm kind of the glow of that. That game ended late last night, and it was just for just being a parent and a fan. It was like this huge adrenaline rush. Like that was so cool. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Really. Also, I know people will definitely want to know because I've been doing this all week. So today is uh, National Root Beer Float Day. Love the Root Beer Float. National Fresh Breath Day, and uh, mm-hmm. National Wiggle Your Toes Day. So there you have it. Do with that information. Whatever you like. Uh, all right, so let's let's get into this article, shall we? This one's got a little bit of traction on the Facebook page. Yeah. The uh, the title simply reads, A Letter to America's Pastors and Churches. Brian and I, if you're not aware, are both pastors at churches here in the Chicagoland area. So this caught my attention, and uh, not everyone has loved it so far. Why don't you uh, take a deep dive into it, Brian? Yeah, it's interesting. It's from a blog written by Larry Taunton. He's the executive director of the Fixed Point Foundation and a freelance columnist. And here's his premise. He goes a lot into Francis Schaeffer. And his premise is that now is a time where America needs your leadership more than ever. And he's talking to pastors, okay? And so he's saying uh, that according to Schaeffer, there's some weak pastoral leadership that has a great uh, effect. And so He is uh, trying to differentiate from kind of just the social justice movement, but he's saying preachers and pastors uh, need to be calling the, they need to be standing up over things that are going to make them unpopular. They need to be willing to go against culture. They need to be out there in what he would call kind of the culture wars, right? And uh, he makes a compelling case. And I I would sum it up. I'd encourage people to read it. Uh, It's pretty inflammatory is not the right word, but uh, it's pretty opinionated. So it's going to rub some of you the wrong way. Uh, When I read this, my first thought was, uh, I agree 
with your premise, uh, I disagree that you've kind of nailed down the problem fully. Like, I don't think, um, I think it's very one-sided. His thing is very one-sided. He basically says uh, Christian pastors need to stand up against abortion. Uh, he talks about uh, gay rights. He talks about other things that Christians have normally been involved in, but never uh, what I would call some of the things that pastors and churches have been quiet about more as of late, right? Racism, um, poverty, some other things. So it feels like a very, if I could, if I could qualify it this way, a very right-leaning view of this. And so I guess I would, I would close it that way. I would say that I kind of agree with his premise that we need to be, uh, be willing to stand up. We need to be willing to speak hard words about what we see going on in our culture. Uh, I just think it's pretty one-sided the way he attacks it. Well, we mentioned every show, too, that we post these articles on Facebook, and so we do like to read some of those comments. So Christina said the only problem is the only focused on leftist movements and did not address right-wing extremists, white nationalism, go. attacks on immigrants, or all the conspiracy theories and fake news from the presidency. The author is clearly biased. I think it's important to speak out against those things, too, which is sort of what you're saying. Uh, Michael said, I see many issues with this. I also see some good in this as well. His problem with BLM should be noted. We need to separate the movement from the organization. He actually lost me when he mentioned Eric Metaxas. Sorry, I did read the rest. I could go on, but I won't. <laughs> so, so he's alluding to some of his uh, his feelings about Metaxas. I, I guess maybe uh, less about this article in particular, and I would encourage you to read it. And just to say it again, Brian and I are regularly posting and discussing articles that we either disagree with a little bit. Sometimes we disagree with a lot of it. Uh, the goal isn't for us to just simply have a steady stream of things we only agree with, because Brian and I don't even agree on a lot of these issues at times. Right. But what what is, in your mind, some of the dangers in a kind of meta sense, in a, in a macro sense of publications, articles that like you're saying, like Christina's saying, and like Michael's saying, are uh, maybe overtly one-sided. Like, what do you what yep. do you think some of the trappings of that? Oh, I think the danger is that it, it takes people who don't agree with you and, and it reinforces what I think is a dangerous narrative out there that all Christians are um, right-wing, not extremists, but lean heavily right, uh, that all Christians are this, as opposed to, like, again, I agree with them that saying that we are above politics, we talked about this, feels like on almost a daily basis, that that's not the option. He's just taking this from such a far right move. And I think the danger is, it, again, reinforces this idea that to be a Christian, uh, here's the topics you need to speak against. Here's the people you need to read. Here's kind of the flow you need to go into politically, as opposed to saying, hey, uh, good Christians can disagree politically, but we've got to engage the conversations uh, with with whichever way you come at it. I think that would be a uh, a more fair way to do this. The people he talks about that we need to be against and the people we need to be reading and for and things we need to be against for that. It's pretty one-sided. And the danger is, is that if you don't agree with them, you go, well, see, I, I don't really fit in this whole Christian uh, sphere again. Right. Uh, and, and I think that's dangerous. Yeah. And I think, I think part of what he says here towards the end, I could see a number of different camps all sort of saying, yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And then when you get down to the nitty gritty, you're like, oh, oh, you, you don't actually agree with the, uh, the execution. He says, America's on the brink of revolution and she is in want of a generation of ministers of the gospel who are prepared to courageously fulfill their calling come what may. You must preach now with strict adherence to the word with greater conviction, greater force and greater urgency than ever before. And you have every reason to be optimistic of the outcome. A couple of things about that statement. Strict adherence to the word 
is a, a little bit of almost virtue signaling, gaslighting, sort of like, well, yeah, yeah, everyone thinks that they're what they're preaching is strict adherence to the word. That's right. That's part of where it gets complicated. The other thing is he mentions conviction, force, and urgency. It doesn't mention anything about being winsome or mm-hmm. being loving or being gracious. You know what I mean? Like, again, Agreed. I think, Agreed. yeah, I think those things are probably true, but if it's only with force, if it's only with urgency and we toss out love, I mean, doesn't, doesn't scripture say, well, then you just have a gang, a, a clanging symbol. That's just a gong. That's mm-hmm. not, if you do mm-hmm. all these things, but have not love, I don't know for me, I don't, I don't mean to like, we don't want to dunk on this article, the entire segment, but there, there is certainly for me some gaps, but also a, a pattern of gaps that if we're only calling people to urgency and forcefulness, I think we're seeing a lot of that already. What I'd love to see is more and more Christians making this, this really, this plea for Christians, please, 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 please do not miss the call, the charge, the invitation to be a people of love like that. Absolutely. You know, that seasoned with salt idea that we see all throughout the new Testament is, uh, I just think absolutely critical and something we just got to talk about. Okay. So Brian, uh, I've been pumped for this interview for a long time (laughs) and I cannot wait for you all to hear it. It's coming up next here with Dr. Jim Wilder, who is a neurotheologian and he's got a brand new book called the other half of church. That's coming up next here on the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us a bunch of places on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, at 1160hope.com slash The Common Good, and Instagram and Twitter, at Common Good Talk, and wherever it is you get your podcast. If you wouldn't mind, subscribing, rating, and reviewing does really help us out a whole lot. And I got to be honest, this is the most excited I've been about a guest in a long time, and I think uh, you all will find out why very shortly. But Dr. Jim Wilder, author of the new book, The Other Half of Church, welcome to the show, sir. Thank you. It's great to be with you, Ian and Brian. Could you just take uh, a minute or two and introduce yourself to our audience, however you see fit? Yeah. Well, um, I grew up in South America, where my parents were missionaries, uh, came to the U.S. when I was a teenager and ended up with a, a Ph.D. in psychology, basically a lot of training in the area of neurology and a master's in theology. And when you combine those two fields, uh, it's called uh, neurotheology. So it's mm-hmm. basically uh, studying how do you uh, live out the Christian life uh, using a human brain. Wow. Uh, whenever you see an overlap, it gets interesting for me. I love that. Oh, man, we really want to dive into that. Use uh, in the description of your book, as we said, called The Other Half of Church, uh, you talk about the full-brained faith. Could you describe what you mean by that phrase, the full-brained faith? Yeah. Well, uh, about 500 years ago when the Enlightenment came along, Christianity really took a turn towards um, basically logical truth, choice, conscious kinds of processes um, that pretty much live in the left side of the brain uh, in terms of their control. But relationships and love and attachment are on the right side of the brain. And so that's where character develops is uh, more on the right side. Hmm. And so if you put that together, so you want to have truth and godly character at the same time, you really have to activate both sides of your brain. And um, most of what we do in Christianity for the last 500 years has really neglected half of the brain. So. That's the other half of church, 
we know should be there, but we don't usually uh, have a very good idea what to, how to get it activated. Something that had dawned on me pretty recently, actually, was when Jesus was asked, you know, what are the greatest commandments? And we kind of famously know, he's called, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What I never realized was that, you know, he's quoting from the Shema, but Jesus adds mm-hmm. the mind, which wasn't there in Deuteronomy 6, seeming right. to imply, oh, oh, Jesus thinks that one of the ways that we love God and love others is with our brain, is with our our mind. And I'm curious why you think that is, why is it so easy for us to miss that part? Like, why have we, particularly in a kind of Western post-enlightenment culture, sort of left that part out to dry a little bit? Well, um, the big debate that really started the whole uh, Protestant uh, Reformation was over salvation. And hmm. when we're trying to decide what part of the Christian is involved in salvation, uh, the decision was it must be the will. It must be a choice to follow God. And so uh, uh, immediately after that uh, uh, came the, in in North America, came the uh, second great awakening, which happened during the Romantic period that really focused on the human will. So if I could just understand and make the right choices, I should be able to be a good Christian. Hmm. It was kind of how it got con- uh, converted and into American Christianity, and and since then we've kind of said, yeah, if I make the to, if I make the right choices, I'll be able to love. I've even heard things like "fake it till you make it," you know, mm-hmm. like right. uh, start acting like you love, and maybe it'll it'll follow up. Uh, the only problem is the brain doesn't really favor that solution. Hmm. I'm wondering, you know, it just struck me that we hear in the news and other places, a lot of times Christians are kind of uh, described as being anti-science. I'm wondering if you push up against that. Do you get that sort of feedback? And how do you answer that for people who kind of pit science against the faith? Yeah, I I do run into that uh, quite often. Um, It's a really kind of interesting contradiction, though, because when I go to church and I talk about the brain, they say, what does the brain have to do with being a Christian right within the church? I, I hear this quite a bit. But then when I talk about uh, the importance of joy and, and, and love to the brain, people in the church respond very strongly to the fact that it's brain science. And if I quote the Bible verses that, that would, you know, follow the same principle, they go like, oh, ho-hum, that's, you know, I've heard that all all my life. It doesn't mm-hmm. really mean much, but brain science, oh, this must be true. So <laughs> it is this funny contradiction within both the Christian world and, and the secular world. I think the main thing is that science is normally thought of as deterministic. Like if we can look at anything at certain science, then it must all be chemistry. And so there's there's no human being, dignity, worth, the choices and stuff like that. Um, and so, you know, I think that's a false way to look at science. Mm. But still, uh, you know, when you do put them together, you start finding the truths line up very nicely. Right, right. There's a, a quote that I was taught in undergrad from Tozer who said something like, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And in another book that you wrote called renovated, you you argue that uh, that's actually maybe not enough that you kind of juxtapose thinking about God versus thinking with God. Can, can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah. The um, thinking with God business only happens in the, in the relational part of the brain when you have an attachment. Hmm. And so uh, the attachment is like this, uh, firewall around our identity that keeps 
anybody who walks by from being able to say, oh, you're this or that, and our brain doesn't, you know, take it in and switch our identities around. It's like, no, you don't know me well enough and care enough about me to change my identity. So hmm. to think with God, uh, you really have to have an attachment with him. And then you find that Jesus says to uh, the disciples in the upper room that the, the Father and I will only reveal ourselves to those who love us. And then Judas, not Iscariot, is completely surprised by that. He said, why are you going to only show yourselves to those who love you from now on? And, and Jesus says, no, that only those who love me will actually obey me. And, and the way the brain is configured, if you don't love God, you won't become like him. You might believe the right things about him, hmm. but that's in our slow conscious track. It's not in the part of our brain that generates our identity and our, our spontaneous responses to one another. So. Uh, we need to get God into that relational connection. We have to love him as, you know, he's the source of our life. He's the one that knows us best. He's the one who can tell us who we are when we lose track of it. Mm. And when we have when we have that desire to be known, it's it's the way our kids come running to us, right? Yeah, right. Uh, you know, they, they want to be known. They want to be recognized. When we do that with God, he helps us discover that we're completely different than we thought we were in wow. this new life. Interesting. Let me, let me, Jim, ask you just a real basic question, kind of a more, not basic, but more foundational. Mm -hmm. You said before we have to activate the other half of our brain. Uh, could you explain that? And how do, how do we do that? Ah, uh, yes. Well, the half of our brain that is relational responds mostly to faces, to gratitude, to smiles, to what we might call nonverbal kinds of communication. So, the easiest way to start with that is to think back on the times that we've experienced God's presence and um, thank him for it. Mm -hmm. And uh, the truths that we've seen in scripture that have changed our lives and thank God for that. When we get into that grateful state, we start really, you know, desiring to know his mind and, and to know him better. That's really good. That other voice you're hearing, by the way, is Dr. Jim Wilder, author of the new book, The Other Half of Church. And he's going to be sticking around for one more segment as we talk about theology and neuroscience. Yes, you guessed right. I am geeking out just a little bit. That's coming up next here <laughs> on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us a bunch of places on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, also 1160hope.com slash The Common Good, and online, wherever you get podcasts, you can subscribe, rate, and review. All of that does help us out a whole ton. And we're joined for a second segment by Dr. Jim Wilder. He's the author of a new book, The Other Half of Church. And one of the things you were mentioning during the break was the uh, the notion that the brain can really develop really a true identity and a false identity, a true self and a false self. Can you speak to that a little further? Yeah, I think it's possibly only human beings that have this system in their brain, but it's as an, an as-if system. Hmm. And it lets us run hypotheticals like, uh, what would it be if I did this? What would I do if I did that? And so we run through the future. We run through a lot of th different things. But about 18 months of age, babies discover that you get better results from people if you don't let them know what you're really feeling hmm. and you act as if you were somebody else. Hmm. And so from as early as 18 months, we start developing this sense of who do I need to be to make 
others react the way I want to. Wow. You know, how do I how do I get what I want out of out of other people, which essentially turns in later on to elements of narcissism and making yourself look good. Right. Uh, and so the one of the problems we have when we go into uh, developing our identity is that it's quite possible to create use this as if circuit to create a very good looking Christian identity that doesn't really strike down to who we really are. So our, our internal reactions are different, but we modify them so that on the outside, we're only displaying what we want people to think we are. So we might mm -hmm. want people to think we're kind. Uh, so we will look that way on the outside, but it doesn't resonate with who we are inside. We want to think that, uh, uh, you know, we're very, um, well, actually, we often think it's our responsibility as Christians to make God look good. Hmm. Uh, Christian psychologist um, indicated that he thought the, the, the sexual abuse in the Catholic Church was traceable directly to the narcissism of the bishops. And that is, wow. they're trying to make the church look good so that God will look good. And in doing so, we have to overlook all those other faults in our character. Right. And so... The other half of church uh, book is basically how would you develop a, um, a church around growing uh, the true you that is going to be eternal and what is going to live in God's presence mm -hmm. and, and uh, dealing with the, our flaws. So mm -hmm. we have to not only have a good attachment to others, but we have to be able to correct one another. And that has really dropped out of American Christian culture. Wow. Yeah. There's so much there. You say in the book here, uh, or at least in the description, that you're going to learn four ingredients necessary to develop and maintain a vibrant and transformational community where all of this kind of occurs. Could you just touch on those four ingredients, what they are? Yeah. The uh, the first one is the stimulus for brain growth, and that is joy. Mm -hmm. The the Your brain grows in response to joy, especially over the first four years of your life, the mm -hmm. physical development, and later on the strength of your system uh, your brain system, how well you withstand stress, directly traces to how much joy you have. And joy means someone is glad to be with me. It's a relational concept. So basically, the joy of the Lord being our strength, let's say, if we really are glad that God is with us, we're incredibly strong. Nothing's going to take us out. When we feel alone is when we're more vulnerable. So mm -hmm. when we know somebody has our back, things like that, all these things build joy. This, that's the first element. The second one is uh, how I interpret the word chesed uh, from the Hebrew that's used about 200 times in the Old Testament for God and people. And it means we have an enduring relationship for the good. Hmm. So we, we take care of one another. And that's really what attachment is in the brain. It's the most powerful system within the brain is the attachment system. And so if our attachment system belongs to God, we've glued ourselves to God and to God's people, then the strongest forces are building as a result of this joyful being together. The result is number three, we have a group identity. And after age 12, your brain goes through an apoptotic period in which a lot of the circuits die off. And the survival of your people becomes more important to your brain than your own survival. Hmm. And uh, that's when you see all of this peer group kind of interest going, who are my people? And the thing is, very rarely do our people end up being the group that's in church. Right. And, right. and so they really have nothing to say to our identity. 
But if you've got this joyful thing growing and you do have a people, uh, what we've found every place we've studied it is that you have a joyful group growing. It'll sooner or later be taken over by a narcissist. Wow. Uh, it's, if you're all going to be happy to see somebody, you should be most happy to see me. <laughs> right. Um, right. Right. And then they will actually come and kill off joyful Christian communities time after time after time, sometimes as leaders, sometimes as participants. But if you don't have a correction to that, to say, well, you know, that's really not the kind of people we are. We're not here really to worship you as wonderful as you appear to think you are. Hmm. Uh, we are actually here to take our flaws in front of God and say, you know, all I can see is my flaws. Can you help me see who you're creating me to be in eternity? Wow. And when we do that together, then you, you have a very transformed kind of people, something that's, that you're, no, you're now no longer creating an as-if person. And by the way, if people are glad to be with your as-if person, your social person, your outside person, inside you don't get joy because you're always thinking to yourself, well, but if you know who I really am, you wouldn't like me. So, mm -hmm. so you have to have joy. You have to be authentic. You, but to be authentic, you also have to be able to see in people what God is, is saying and do. So those are the four ingredients. Joy, um, Hesed attachment, a, a group identity, and then a way to correct one another so that we, we grow what God meant to grow. Yeah, I got to say, too, as, as an Enneagram 3, that really resonates because often the uh, Achilles heel of the 3 is wanting to present this version of themselves that everyone will like. And the, the shame that lies underneath is the belief, honestly, that if someone saw who I really am, they would they would never like me or I'm only as valuable as the output that I can provide. You know, and I, I know a lot of pastors that struggle exactly with that. And one of the things I've been wrestling with, and I'd love for you to take just the rest of our time to talk about this. You know, we've seen like the attractional movement and kind of in response, we saw this the missional movement. And I really wonder if like the formational movement is kind of what we need, the transformation of actually being an apprentice, a disciple of Jesus. And you, you seem to write a lot about this in a lot of your work. How do we actually get after transformation? Could, could you just take the remaining, I don't know, minute or two that we have and talk about what, why is transformation formation such a critical conversation for us to be having right now? Well, it is because um, one of the huge reasons why youth is leaving the church is they simply don't like the character of the older people. Mm -hmm. They say, if I'm going to grow up to be like them, I don't see why I should go to this group. You know, I, I like my neighbors. I like my Zen Buddhist uh, guy across the street. He's got, you know, he's, he's got more relational skills. He's got more personality. He's got more maturity. I just like being around him. Mm. Uh, and so... But Jesus was actually an extraordinarily attractive, so we want to be like him. Uh, we have to somehow form a, a personality that resembles what he has. Mm. Uh, and the problem is that your brain is more shaped by who you love than what you believe. So mm. we've been trying to get people to get all their beliefs straight. Now, I've got no problem with that. Uh, we should have our beliefs straight. Otherwise, we'll do stupid things. Right. But that is not, as far as your brain is concerned, uh, going to really turn it around. You really have to come to know people. And so the formation is a relational formation, not just a matter of ascetic practices. And and that's where we're bringing a, a kind of this relational conversation to the formation movement. Goodness, that is so good. That other voice you're hearing, by the way, is Dr. Jim Wilder, neurotheologian and author of the new book, The Other Half of Church. Christian Community, Brain Science, and Overcoming Spiritual Stagnation. Sir, thank you so, so much for taking the time to be with us on the show today. We really appreciate it. 
Loved it. Thanks. Our Thank you. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Happy National Wiggle Your Toes Day, Fresh Breath Day, and Root Beer Float Day. I cut you off earlier, though, Brian. You, you said you're a big fan of root beer floats? Love the root beer float. I do. Are you I a do. big fan of root beer? Yeah. I haven't been drinking much soda in my life over the last, like, two or three years. But when I was more of a soda drinker, root beer was high on the list, for sure. And what is soda again? Could you define that for me? I'm not sure. What <laughs> Us East Coasters, we call it soda. What would oh, you we mean call pop? it here? Are we talking about? Yeah, there you go. I'll, I'll give it to you. Sure. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. Uh, a couple of things. We have a Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. You can not only comment on the articles there. You can leave a review there. You can share that page. All that helps us out a whole ton. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk. And wherever it is you get podcasts. Wouldn't mind subscribing, rating, and reviewing helps us out a whole ton. And we've quoted, quoted, we've read from uh, Patheos a number of times. If you're not familiar, Patheos has a number of sort of different streams, and they're all kind of housed under the Patheos umbrella. So, you know, Catholic to progressive Christian to evangelical to conservative Christian to atheist. It's all, and they have all sorts of different kind of platforms within the Patheos universe. But I came across this article from a couple of months ago. It says how a plague exposed the Christian nation myth what's going on here yeah and I, I, I we probably need to stop apologizing but every now and then you know it's helpful to remind people of the patheos like you said lots of different streams this is under progressive christianity which probably means it's going to anger some people uh but let me read this it says the evidence is in the united states can finally abandon the pretense that it is a christian nation for most of us this isn't news since its inception america has demonstrated many of the same strengths and character flaws as other colonial western nations but if COVID-19 has done anything, it's revealed that the U.S. brand of Christianity doesn't look anything like Jesus. So oh coming out swinging. Coming out swinging. Here we go. Uh, he says, take up your cross. There's a point in the Gospels when Jesus reveals he's going to die. Peter promptly rebukes him. After all, Jesus can't die. They've put all their hope in him as the Messiah, and they expect him to deliver from Roman oppression. Jesus tells Peter uh, to can it, but then follows it up with these words. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Christians sum up Jesus' words with the phrase, dying to self. They love the term and use it often, but for the most part, it's a poetic abstraction, a form of spiritual idealism. It's a difficult conviction to hold when your cultural ethos focuses on your individual right to pursue happiness. At the mm. Incarnation, Jesus laid aside his deity to identify with humanity. And at Calvary, he laid down his human life to make reconciliation possible in both actions. Laying aside his deity and taking up his cross, he renounced his rights. In a culture and economy that operates on consumption and acquisition, it's difficult to convince Christians to renounce anything. In fact, quite often when American Christians are asked to give up something for the sake of others, it's interpreted as persecution. One doesn't have to search hard for stories about churches who continue to meet against the recommendation of authorities, even when it put people at risk. I'll pause there. What are you, what is your take on the overall premise thus far of this article? You know, I was just having a conversation with a buddy earlier today who, uh, by his own admission, has never been a Christian, has been interested in Jesus and sort of, I mean, unsolicited had shared with me that part of what's been so difficult for him is watching the behavior of some Christians, not all Christians, but some Christians, particularly 
in the midst of a pandemic. And we talked a bit about the masks and actually referenced, you know, Philippians two the way that this author does. And he goes, well, why is this such an argument then? Why is this like for him, you know, from the outside looking in, he's like, I, I don't understand then. Like what, what is it about, uh, in some cases, American Christianity that puts our own individual rights high, high above anything else or anyone else, uh, which again, I, we probably should have someone on the show that could argue that case. I don't want this to in any way be a, a one-sided slam dunk on anybody, but um, I, I think at the very least, and I probably wouldn't word any of this maybe as strongly as this author is, but I, I think uh, I think some points are made, if I had to say. Mm-hmm. He goes on to say, Christianity in America is so entangled with patriotism and exceptionalism when asked to shelter in place, Christians don't think it's odd to deck themselves out in G.I. Joe uh, cosplay complete with AR-15s to storm a government building and demand their rights. But at the same time, they're unflinching in their support of authority being misused against others. Uh, you can talk about racism. An unarmed black man or woman is shot. They instantly make excuses on behalf of authorities. Uh, that can still that can look like trotting out an old mugshot to prove that person's terrible character. But when asked to stay home, patriots have no problem defying the orders. Uh, the a mixture of Christianity and Americanism is a troubling tincture, enabling people to cite Romans 13 to get others to obey authority while they stock up weapons to fight off a potentially tyrannical government. So again, pausing here, this author clearly has a low view of evangelicalism in America right now, kind of, uh, and things we've talked about. Um, where you said he, he makes some good point, where he's right, where's the dangers here? I, I think you give a great example of what, even how your non-Christian friend is reacting to what he's seeing. Uh, but I would guess, I guess I would ask you this. Do you see this as a trend? Um, and if it is a trend, where where's the danger lying here for the church? I mean, I think there's a lot of danger. I think it is also unfortunate sometimes that the ones, I mean, we've talked before about the types of people that tend to make headlines, whether you're talking Christianity or just in the media where there's often, we've even mentioned some of the Christian celebrities who have walked away from their faith and said, what about this topic? No one's talking about it. What about this topic? No one's talking about it. And you and I are thinking we're talking about there. I know there are people that are talking about it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it can be easy to, I think, paint with a very broad brush because like he talks about this section here, failing the mask test. I know plenty of Christians who aren't failing the mask test, but obviously there's a perspective here. I'll I'll read a bit of it. He says, it's strange, but nothing reveals the rot at the center of American Christianity, like the response people have had to wearing masks. It requires zero sacrifice to put a mask on, but that's still too much of an ask for many Christians. Mask wearing is really the perfect litmus test for self-denial. It's something we do for others. My mask protects you and your mask protects me. It's not only a legitimate way to stop the spread of germs, but it also communicates our care for others, which you and I have talked about. So when a store like Costco or Trader Joe's refuses to allow someone in without a mask, it's to protect their employees who aren't getting paid what they deserve and other shoppers. They're asking people to take the health of others seriously because the choice not to wear a mask doesn't communicate that you're okay with getting sick. It communicates that you're okay with getting others sick. It's such a low bar for denying oneself, and yet there are people all over the country who refuse this small act of solidarity. Their discomfort and inconvenience is too big of an ask. Again, maybe more snark than I would include if I were writing this, but raises some interesting points, I think, about like what would you say, Brian, is maybe the counter argument that someone is hearing this saying, no, I, I, I believe that I am self-denying exactly as Jesus has asked me. And in fact, I think it's more Christian not to wear a mask. Like, could, could you argue from that position? 
Yeah. Now, most people out there, if you listen to the show, you know my feeling on masks. I think that we should be wearing them. Um, But I think the arguments probably, if you don't believe the truth, the, uh, the, uh, the, what, what people are saying about masks, if you believe it's untrue and it's some sort of bigger, um, cause behind it, that's causing, you know, authorities to push it, then maybe you say, you know what, I'm actually standing up for truth. I'm trying to help people see where the wool's being pulled over their eyes. And mm-hmm. so I'm helping my neighbor, I'm helping, uh, other people. You could see it that way, but I do like, uh, you know, I think this guy, you know, he's probably has a lower view of, of the church and Christianity than I do, but he does. I think ending by talking about following Jesus requiring sacrifice, I think is the right call. Those of us who follow Jesus, you've signed up to love your neighbor. You've signed up to sacrifice, to put others in front of yourself. And I do think he's right. This pandemic has really been like a magnifying glass in some ways to go, where do we do that? Well, where don't we do that? Well, where do we have the will to do that? I think it's, it's certainly an article that's going to make you think. And at the very least, I feel like self-denial is always, always, always a question as Christ followers that we need to keep out in front because we're so inclined towards the opposite. I think yeah. that's not just an American thing or even a modern thing. But I think if if at the core of all of this is taking up our cross and following him, dying to ourselves, and I think at the very least, it's worth building in some metrics that help us better assess at, with some level of regularity. How, how am I doing in that category? Because I think it's it's important, but it's also really, really difficult. Well, as we say in the biz, first hour is in the books, but coming up in the second half, American exceptionalism was our pre-existing condition. That's coming up here in the second half of The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour is exceptionalism, our pre-existing condition. And then we're joined by Jesse Oxford talking about being brave enough to suck at something. That's coming up next here on The Common Good. Everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us a bunch of places, almost too many places. Instagram and Twitter to start, at Common Good Talk. You can also find us on Facebook. The Common Good Radio Show, a bunch of stuff happening over there. You can comment on articles, shoot us a message if you have articles or ideas for guests or even just topic ideas, even if you don't have an article or a link or anything. If there's stuff that you'd love for us to tackle or to wrestle with or talk about on the show, just shoot us a message there. You can also find us wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, review, share, tag, post. All of that helps us out a whole bunch. And we are super grateful for all of you who have already done that. You're sitting there thinking, yeah, I already have done it. Please stop asking us to do it. I hear you, <laughs> and uh, we're probably going to keep asking. But anyway, on this uh, National Fresh Breath Day, I thought it would be interesting to talk about this idea. We were tackling a little bit. We've talked a little bit in the first hour about exceptionalism, but this article out of the Washington Post says American uh, American exceptionalism was our pre-existing condition. Uh, what is going on here, Brian? Yeah, let me jump down a couple paragraphs. The author here in the Washington Post writes. Because uh, the beginning of the article is all about all the hard stuff that's been going on the last couple of months between the pandemic and then also uh, the protests and everything around the murder of George Floyd. And uh, the author writes this, this test of solidarity and public trust couldn't have come at a worse time. America's mask has slipped. There is a feeling of failure of being repeatedly victimized by a virus, despite our supposed exceptionalism. Hmm. National pride in the United States has fallen to a record low, according to Gallup. 
and only one in five Americans is satisfied with the direction of the country, a steep drop from four months ago when satisfaction was at a 15-year high. That's crazy in the span of four months. Yeah. Uh, 49% of whites, also a record low, say they're extremely proud to be an American. For non-whites, the rate is half of that. Perhaps we ignored, the author says, our pre-existing conditions for too long. Uh, In 1979, Jimmy Carter admitted to a national crisis of confidence in the wake of Vietnam and Watergate and energy shortages. But then we shut our eyes and pictured Ronald Reagan's shining city. Uh, We believe Bill Clinton's pep talk about our best best qualities. We cloaked George W. Bush's uh, foreign policy and pageant style patriotism and then believe Barack Obama's insistence that America's were not as divided as we seemed. Uh, And then it goes on and on. And so pausing there. Uh, an interesting premise that says uh, this idea that we uh, this idea of American exceptionalism, right? This idea that we're better than everybody else uh, has come back to bite us a little bit when things are really bad. Because I think what this author is saying, in some ways, we can't we can't admit that things are bad, that we're doing things incorrectly, that we have to change course. But instead, just you know what? We're Americans. We keep doing the things the way we do, and this virus is going to go away, or racism is going to go away, or whatever else. There's something at the core, the fabric here. Uh, this author is saying that doesn't allow for us to ask the hard questions and make the course corrections as needed. And I'm actually less interested in talking about the nuts and bolts of the article, and I kind of want to ask you how this applies to the church world. I know that uh, most people are aware that Brian and I are pastors, so sometimes maybe disproportionately we're thinking about all right, how, how does this actually lay, live out in the the local church context, or for a Christ follower, whether or not you're local here or not. But what what do you think are some of the dangers of maybe blind exceptionalism when it comes to church work? Oh, I think it is a couple things. Uh, one is as individual churches. Uh, I know sometimes my pride can get really wrapped up if anybody points out anything about not just my leadership, but the church in general. Like, no, we're perfect. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right. we we got this. But then the church, big C church, too, uh, there is a sense that uh, if we uh, no, we've got everything figured out or we're heading in the right direction. And therefore any kind of critique about the church or church, uh, evangelicalism or whatever else is, uh, is right up there kind of starting to go towards persecution. That's just the culture, uh, not understanding us and persecuting us as opposed to going, you know what, maybe, maybe we're missing some things. Maybe we need to be a little more self-reflective. Maybe there's some hard questions we need to ask ourselves as evangelicals, as the big C church. I think, when you buy into uh, we're, we, we don't have problems, we're exceptional, we can just kind of keep doing things the way we've always done it. It not only leads to arrogance, it leads to defensiveness. And I think when we're defensive, then you're never willing to kind of be introspective and make changes where there might need to be, as opposed to saying, you know what, we're not perfect. We make mistakes. Let's, let's try to become more perfect. Let's try to be better and do better. And that often requires a lot of question asking. So everything you just said, I think seems fairly obvious, or I'm certainly convinced. Why, why do you think that it still happens? If exceptionalism makes us blind to our own weaknesses and typically inevitably cultivates hubris and arrogance to some degree, especially among leadership, why, why do you think a lot of churches still tend to be obsessed with sort of a Lego world, everything is awesome kind of posture? Like, What, what do you think is the rationale behind that? Hey, I like that Lego. Good reference to the Lego movie right there. Uh, I don't, I think the rationale is, uh, it's a great question. 
uh, it's hard to change. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, it's hard to ask hard questions of yourself. It's hard to do the work to make, it's just easier to go the way you've always gone and B, you know, uh, you use the word hubris and arrogance. I, I, I think that a lot of us would, who even, uh, might have some hubris in us. We don't admit it. Like we don't even see it. And so you genuinely think you're, uh, doing things correctly and going the right direction. So I think it's, it's a little bit of a mixture of that. It's, you know, uh, I know when somebody tells me, especially somebody, uh, yeah, when somebody tells me, hey, uh, let me just point this out, whether it be about my leadership or the church as a whole or whatever, I get defensive. It's my first move. It's my natural inclination. And it takes work to go, no, why am I being defensive? Let me not be defensive. Let me listen to this out. It's just easier to go, oh, that person's probably just sinful <laughs> or that person mm. is against us. Mm. And uh, I, I guess that's probably where I'd go. What, what comes to mind for you? Why, why do you think uh, we still do this? I mean, I think particularly in the United States, uh, we have a borderline, if not entirely rooted obsession with like an always up into the right trajectory. And if our organization or our church or our team isn't trending in that direction. It's somehow a failure of me. And I'm obviously I'm not against growth and health and even success, but I do feel like oftentimes we are more attracted to a perpetual positivity because that, that tends to sort of like change the water temperature. Like CCC, we're doing great. Everything's awesome. Everything's wonderful. Yeah, and uh, yeah. that can feel, I can see the allure of that. And I think that there is certainly something about, like if you were just an Eeyore, well, that would be a tough organization or church to be a part of too. Like, wow, we are always really awful. Like everything seems terrible. Like I'm not saying that that is the solution either, but I feel like people more and more as of late are are particularly drawn to like authentic owning like, hey, we got we do have some good things and there's plenty of things to celebrate and God is still good. However, we're actually really struggling over here. Like I, I wrote this a couple years ago. I, I don't think the goal is for us to be an uncritical lover or a loveless critic. I think we can kind of fall into either category. We're like, Hey, if you love this church, then you won't, you won't actually raise any red flags and we can apply that to country, right? If you love this country, then you better just appreciate it and shut up. But I think we also see a lot of the other side, the, the loveless critic side where it's like your whole objective is to tear this thing down or at the very least to constantly poke holes. And there doesn't seem to be any like, embeddedness of love in your critique. I don't think it's, we shouldn't be uncritical lovers or loveless critics. I think it's something in between. It's like fighting for what matters, but do that in love, you know? And I think, I think in leadership and in churches and in politics and even in our neighborhoods, I think all of that's important, but uh, I think, I think you're right. I think it's, uh, it's much easier said than done. That's right. But certainly something to shoot for. Uh, Coming up next, a guy named David French, who you and I have referenced a number of times on the show. He wrote an article It says coronavirus, conspiracy theories, and the ninth commandment. A better political theology can make us less vulnerable to lies. That's coming up next here in The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. Find us all over the World Wide Web. You can just Google it. You'll find us eventually. I I should probably test that, actually. There's a lot of The Common Good, I'm sure, Maybe the Common yeah. Good Chicago, the Common Good Ian and Brian, the Common Good Radio Show, any of that. Or just ask Alexa. We've, uh, we haven't talked about Alexa in a while. You can ask Alexa. She'll play you the show. She'll play the podcast, which is available wherever it is you get podcasts. 
And uh, I wonder, will Alexa subscribe, rate, and review for us too? We're going to have to try that. We are. I look forward to learning the answer to that in nine months. Um, <laughs> We're just going to hold that out for you. <laughs> oh, perfect. Thanks. Thanks, Brian. <laughs> uh, all right. So David French, he writes the French press, which I'm still jealous about. That's incredible. I'm looking at it a is. French press right now, by the way. Uh, he wrote coronavirus, conspiracy theories, and the ninth commandment, a better political theology can make us less vulnerable to lies. We only have a few moments together here. It's a long, long article. I say it a lot. He he is one of those guys that I think writing from a, con- a conservative perspective is really fair. He's incredibly smart, but I think he's winsome. He's nuanced. Uh, I've referenced his articles numerous times just to friends and family. But uh, what is kind of the gist of what he's getting at here? Uh, it's conspiracy theories. And we, uh, yeah. uh, Ed Stetzer, friend of the show, wrote a great article <laughs> about uh, conspiracy theories in Christianity Today. Uh, but David French, like you said, just kind of goes into it and it's really long and his stuff is well worth reading. He says, I can list some of the cultural and sociological reasons for the willingness to believe, well, virtually anything about our political and cultural opponents combine negative polarization where partisan Americans often believe the worst about their opponents with undeniable political and media failures. And you've got a recipe for suspicion and mistrust that can spiral out of control. The good news is that we're often wildly wrong about the nefarious intentions or beliefs of our political opponents. Mm -hmm. The bad news is that there does not seem to be a Christian exception to these polarizing trends. Our community isn't so much resisting those trends as it's empowering them. And then he goes into some stats about evangelicals. I was just having this conversation with a friend yesterday and I made the claim that I think uh, I told them uh, Christ followers should be the last people uh, dabbling and kind of going into conspiracy theories and peddling conspiracy theories. This person looked like they looked at me like I had, like I had a second head. <laughs> like Really? Uh, yeah. And, uh, and, and I, we had a great conversation just about, listen, uh, as people who are supposed to be trying to get at truth at the very least, we need to take conspiracy theories and, and, kind of investigate them before passing them on. And it is, uh, you know, I think we all see this in our own, you know, Facebook feeds and Twitter feeds. My Christian friends uh, are, uh, I'm being generous here to say that there's no real difference between them and my non-Christian friends when it comes to conspiracy theories. A lot of times they're the worst ones. Right. Um, and and I think David French makes a good point here about the damage and the danger of that. Yeah, he writes a little later. He says, let me explain it like this. If you're a church-going American Christian, you tend to build up a reasonably robust theology of Christianity in your marriage, in your workplace, or in your school. And you don't obtain your understanding of how to be a godly husband, father, employee, or boss merely by reading Scripture. Though Scripture should be your foundation. By the time you reach middle age, you've been exposed to countless books, Sunday school lessons, speaking series, YouTubes, personal testimonies, retreats, and small group study sessions that help you engage with virtually every life challenge. This is not the case with politics, not at all. With politics, the theological, quote, training consists mainly of education about issues and controversies that Christians should be aware of and concerned about. Conservative Christian political engagement, for example, is largely defined by the defense of religious liberty and the protection of the unborn. These issues are important and our faith principles should inform our political positions. We do not, however, spend nearly enough time learning how to live as political beings within a political community. We connect our faith with our political objectives, but do far less work connecting our faith to our political conduct or our theological priorities. 
This is not the way we engage with other significant areas of life. Christian teachings about our lives in our workplaces is not primarily about how to obtain a promotion or how to invest our money or how to start a business. In other words, it's not about the objectives of economic engagement, though those objectives are important. Instead, the focus is on ministering to colleagues, cultivating faith in adversity, and generally learning how to be salt and light, even in sometimes hostile or intimidating environments. Similarly, student ministries aren't about teaching students how to get good grades or to become accomplished scholars. Instead, they address how a student can maintain and grow his faith and act as an evangelist and servant to his classmates even when growing up is hard and the pressures to conform to the world are great. You get the idea. Time and time again, in critical areas of life, Christians are rightly taught that the objective of the secular activity is less important than the manner with which you engage with your community. In every context, commandments regarding our conduct aren't conditioned on levels of adversity. Duties of honesty and kindness don't slide away when bankruptcies loom or failures threaten our plans, even when those failures can have grave consequences for our lives. I guess I'll stop there. There's so much more I'd love to read. But what do, so what do you think good. about kind of what he's framing there as a, a shift in our approach to how we engage politically? I, I mean, I think it's fabulous. Like, I think I, I think he's right on. How, how often have we talked about in the last couple of weeks and months that Christians just need to look differently and that we treat our politics, as he says here, so differently than we treat other areas of our lives? Uh, in the danger of it, he's going to go on to talk about the ninth commandment that we're told not to bear false witness about our neighbor. And basically that's what a conspiracy theory is. Oftentimes, uh, not every conspiracy theory is wrong, but I think even the point is to make sure that it's truthful before you go sharing it and believing it. Um, and, uh, it's, man, I think this is such an important topic. The question is, this is one of those that sometimes it feels like uh, it's it's gone, like the horse is out of the barn. You know what I mean? Like, uh, how do we bring this back? Like, as a pastor, what what's your practical takeaway from this as you pastor your people, as you have these conversations? Yeah, I like what he says here. He says, this is a long digression to make a simple point. Unless the church can address its deep and more fundamental failure of moral and theological instructions and in politics, many of its leaders and thinkers will continue to play whack-a-mole with the symptoms of the underlying disease. And make no mistake, conspiracy theories represent one of those, sim- those symptoms. After all, what is a conspiracy theory but a lie? It comprehensively and grievously violates the Ninth Commandment. A conspiracy theorist bears false witness against his neighbor, against his fellow citizens. And I- I'd love to know, like, based on you even mentioned earlier in the segment that you had a conversation just what you say yep. yesterday? Uh, is this an article that you think would be helpful in that conversation? Or are you and I kind of just, is this an example of an echo chamber where we already like French and we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You tell them, man, we agree. I think it's a helpful article. I would maybe start with uh, just because of the length of it and the depth of it. I might start with uh, the really good article that Stetzer wrote, because I think it, it gets okay. more at the topic. And then this one's going to dive you deep, <laughs> like as to the problems with it. But I do, I think this is something that the church uh, needs to be talking about because um, there's going to be a lot of falsehoods, dare I say, fake news coming out between now and November sure. on both sides of the aisle. And we're going to see them on our Facebook feeds. And there's cer- certain people are much more predisposed to believe everything they read. Uh, and, and I just think that has the potential, because uh, I think it's already doing it, but it's got the potential to really harm uh, the witness of the church. I think if we look no different than our culture in bearing false witness about our neighbor, our political mm-hmm. opponents, or whatever else it might be, I don't think that it's just as simple as being wrong. I think it really 
um, it, it, uh, it damages our witness. And for that reason, we've got to be really careful around this subject. I think that is well said, Brian, and I won't add anything more to it. Coming up next, can we say friend of the show? At the very least, my doppelganger, Jesse Oxford, uh, founder of Ox Creative right here in Chicago. And he wrote an article that I love that said, be uh, brave enough to suck at something new. That's coming up next here in The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us a whole host of places on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post articles. You can send us messages. You can also find us Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk. And wherever it is, you get your podcasts. If you wouldn't mind, subscribe, rate, review, all of that stuff helps us out a whole ton. And uh, I'm absolutely thrilled to have on the show again, friend and my twin, brother from another mother, uh, founder and creative director at Ox Creative, Jesse Oxford. Welcome back to the show, sir. Hey, thanks. It's great to be here. And it's uh, great to be anywhere after spending the weekend passing kidney stones in the hospital. Oh, outstanding. I am. So we are going to ask about that later. Uh, for those of you <laughs> who maybe don't remember who Jesse is, could you just introduce yourself real briefly? Yeah. So uh, I am the creative director uh, at Ox Creative. So we're uh, yeah, a creative agency who works with organizations who are doing good in the world. So I'm working with teams who do f- filmmaking, branding, design, and just s- solving creative problems in some fun ways. So we love that. Yeah. So Jesse, we've got this article from uh, Medium that you wrote called Brave Enough to Suck at Something New, which is a great title. And I'm curious, why does that, why uh, does doing something new require bravery? Yeah. Like, well, for me, like at work, um, as like this, like CEO and kind of creative director, I find that in a lot of the rooms that I'm in, people are are looking at me as the expert on something. Uh, And I have spent like, like a lot of time intentionally mastering a skill. Um, but I've like in my personal life, there were a few rooms that I kind of like stepped into where I realized I was the rookie and it made me feel super uncomfortable. And I was like, yeah. Oh, like, I don't like this. I was like, I feel like there's something wrong. And then I realized it's like, I'm like, Oh, in most of the areas of my life, I feel like I'm a master over here. Mm-hmm. I feel really, really dumb. And that was like cycling for me. I had spent like a lot of time riding on my own. And then I hopped on the road riding with a group of guys who also rode and I wasn't able to keep up with their pace. And I thought that I was really good. And I was like, next Saturday, I'm not going to come back and ride with these guys. <laughs> I'm, I'm sick of feeling like an idiot. Like I can't even keep up. And they, they would just leave me. And then, you know, 26 miles later, like I catch up on my own, like, you know, at like a, a, a slower time than that. Hmm. Um, I feel like a lot of people, even just because of COVID and other things, like our world has changed a lot. And a lot of people are having to try new things for the first time. Right. Where they, they had a career, a role, a position that they were able to rely on. They have a lot of experience and a lot of time in it. And our world is just like shifted and shaken things up. And now like, be it like in order to like, you know, we're forced out and we have to provide for our families in a new way, or we're being asked to take on other responsibilities and something new that we haven't before, hmm. that it feels really uncomfortable. And we're not used to like sucking at something. And for me, uh, like, I don't know if you're at all familiar with the Enneagram, but it's kind of like different types of people. I'm an Enneagram three, and that's like an achiever and a person who cares what they look like to other people. Um, so when I have to do something publicly that I'm not like professional at, or I feel like I'm looking silly, I want to quit straight away. And it takes everything that I can to stay in the room and muscle through and just be comfortable in my own skin, not being the best because 
I'm used to not having to Google the answers about branding or I'm used mm-hmm. to the answers about how to make a film and stuff like that. So like I'm the expert in those rooms and I try mm-hmm. to avoid the other rooms, but I don't actually think it's best f- for me to do that. It's funny that you mentioned that because earlier in the show, we were uh, discussing with a neurotheologian, Dr. Jim Wilder, who was brilliant. And I was kind of sharing some of my own Enneagram three and like how for a lot of us, uh, shame is a really yeah. terrifying notion because that's looking like an idiot in front of other people. It's what's kept me from wanting to like start new workouts with other people. I'm like, no, nah, I'll just work out by myself because mm-hmm. I don't want to look dumb in front of you. And it's actually stunted a lot of areas of my life where I can look back now and say, are oh, you really that fear? dictate for you what you were and weren't willing to do there and it's what i find so interesting in your work because you are constantly solving problems and i imagine often coming up against things you're like oh i've never encountered a problem like this or a team like this or an organization like this and you you actually mentioned the book uh the wonder switch the difference between limiting your life and living your dream What, what kind of impact has that book or that premise had in helping you kind of push through some of the fear yeah well like i'm harris like the the author of that book is a friend of mine named Harris. And he like, he talks about this, like a narrative cycle. So I wish I had like a diagram to kind of of show you what this (laughs) is, but basically like a a lot of us in our life, we start out believing a thing that we think is true. It may be Mm -hmm. true. It may not be true, but for our reality, it is true. And as we're going through life, we're like excited about, like about the future of exploring something new. And then we have like an experience or trauma that like changes our belief in that narrative um, that turns off what he calls the wonder switch, where it's like you believed in opportunities, you were willing to try something. And then from that point on, once the wonder switch is flipped, um, you can't operate under like a true narrative anymore. And I think that a, a lot of times, like what you said, the thing that flips that switch is trauma or shame, you know, mm. like we aren't willing to engage in something new. So we have to like intentionally seek out opportunities and experiences that kind of create a new experience, a new truth and kind of flips that, that wonder switch back on mm. or else mm. you'll continue to live the rest of your life under a false narrative. So like right. when you're walking inside of that gym for the first time, you're the skinny person or, or you're larger than what like everybody else in the room is. And you're looking at all these ripped people, right. you're in the exact place that you need to make a change in your life. But because you don't look like everybody else, you want to turn around and walk out, you know? Right. Right. And for me, if I were to try to do a workout with all of the same equipment on my own, in my own gym. I literally wouldn't even know what to do with it. Like I need the other people who like look the way that I want to look or are the amount of health that that I want to be to show Mm -hmm. me what to do. But a lot of times my shame prevents me from the relationships that could cause me to get to the place that I need to turn that wonder switch back on and to have the narrative that I want in my life. That's good. That's awesome. You you touched on this already a little bit, but if you can go into more, uh, what's the, what's the payoff in the end, in your opinion, for when we bust through that kind of embarrassment and not, and being the rookie, what ends up being the payoff over time at the other end? Yeah. So for me, the way I like avoid it is like, I have this feeling inside of me that I feel really uncomfortable that I'm trying to like avoid, like, I don't want that. And that's why I don't want to be in the room. Because I I believe that everybody else in the room is thinking a thing about me that I don't want them to. Um, In in the cycling instance, I'm thinking that they all think that I'm that I suck and that I shouldn't be there. You know, 
But honestly, what I think that they're doing is like, they want me to come out every week because they want to see me succeed and they want to see me mm-hmm. get better and like improve. So I deprive myself of, of, you know, I guess of transcending in life and of, of, of creating joy for, for, for other people, because mm-hmm. I believe that, that they're thinking something about me. They might be thinking that they might not. Um, so for, for me, the motivation is a, to be able to learn something new, to be able to grow and to master more than one thing, that journey is like exciting. Um, and to build some friendships and relationships in the process where people can like believe something about me and see me kind of like achieve that together. It's like, it's, it's just a cool relationship, um, that we're both believing that the best about each other instead of both believing the worst, which I think is what the story is that we spend in our minds. Man, I love that. And, and just uh, cards on the table, we, uh, we have worked with you guys a whole lot. I think what you guys do is brilliant. I think you have one of the best creative teams anywhere in the world, to be honest, and the stuff that you guys work on and are creating and the way that you partner with churches and organizations, I think is second to none. Just as we're wrapping up, could you just let people know where they can learn more about you or your writing or your organization? Yeah, you can check us out uh, on social at OxCreates or OxCreates.com. Right on. That is Jesse Oxford. I, I do encourage you. This is posted on our Facebook page. Read his article at Medium, Brave Enough to Suck at Something New. Jesse, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today, man. Awesome. Thanks. This is new. So hopefully I didn't suck. No. <laughs> <laughs> it was outstanding. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us a whole host of places, even in quarantine. We're on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com, slash The Common Good, and wherever it is you can podcast. If you wouldn't mind subscribing, rating, and reviewing, that helps us out a whole ton. I'm going to do something that we haven't done maybe ever. I'm going to read an adaptation of a children's book, but I did just discover that Brian's never heard of The Giving Tree. Is that true, Brian? Yeah, I've heard of the giving tree. I It is an accurate statement to say that if you asked me, what's the giving tree? Tell me the story. I would have no idea. None. You know who Shel Silverstein is, though, right? I do. I do. Uh, but, but yeah. And you were uh, you were amazed by this more than the fact that I didn't don't like avocados or the burnt cookies or whatever else. When you found out I don't know the giving tree, uh, I thought our relationship was over. I thought I thought it was done. It's it's really it's more it's a it's a compilation it's it's a compounded issue for me Ryan you you've never seen or read the Lord of the Rings at all right I'm going to come off as really bad here but go ahead yes I don't think that's really bad I mean these are your choices this is America uh, what's your favorite Shel Silverstein book uh, Shel Silverstein oh is is uh, where's the sidewalk end Shel Silverstein <laughs> yes yep yeah yes <laughs> that's it then that's it. That's it. That's the one. Okay. I feel good. I thought I was about to embarrass myself really badly there. I, I imagine that uh, people, especially if they're maybe like Brian, they're not familiar with this one, but you see the cover, you might it might jog your memory a little bit. Here's here's what it says. It says, The Tree Who Set Healthy Boundaries by Topher Payne, an alternative ending to Shel Silverstein's The Giving Tree. So I'm just going to read it, and I think there's an interesting moral here. So I'm going to read it, and then, Brian, I'm going to let you react. Sound fun? That sounds wonderful. <laughs> All right. Here we go. Says, I am too busy to climb trees, said the boy. I want a house to keep me warm, he said. I want a wife and I want children, and so I need a house. Can you give me a house? And the tree said, Okay, hold up. This is already getting out of hand. <laughs> Look, I was fine with giving you the apples to help you get on your feet. They'll grow back next season anyway, but no, I'm not giving you a house. You know, 
I've seen boys like you pull this nonsense with other trees in the forest. First, it's the apples, then branches, then the trunk. And before you know it, that mighty beautiful tree is just a sad little stump. Well, look here, boy. I love you like family, but I am not going down like that. And while we're on the subject, the tree said, grabbing him by the collar of his shirt, I recognize friendships evolve over time, and we may not see each other as often because you don't have the time uh, for your tree friends, but we used to be real tight. Now it feels like I only see you when you need something. How do you think that makes me feel? The boy took a long breath. He felt a sour rumble in his stomach because he realized he hadn't considered his friend's feelings. He goes on. Yes, boy, bad. I hadn't even remembered the last time you asked me how I'm doing. How are you, tree? Asked the boy. He sincerely wanted to know. So the tree told the boy all the gossip from the forest and introduced him to the family of the red squirrels and had moved into the trunk. While she was glad for the company the squirrels provided, she was concerned about long-term health effects of hosting a burrow. So the boy called the local arborist to explain that the squirrels don't eat wood. They only build nests in pre-existing holes, so the tree was in no danger. The tree was so relieved, and so was the boy. He loved his friend and was concerned about her long-term health because he had taught uh, she had taught him the importance of empathy. And so it continued, the tree and the boy, looking out for each other like that, both of them content in the knowledge that someone had their back. The boy attended culinary school. The tree took courses online and got her certif- certification in small business management. They did their homework together nearly every day. The boy became a pastry chef. Together, they opened a bakery selling the best apple pies anyone had ever tasted, turned a profit in the first 18 months, which is most uncommon. Eventually, the boy had a son of his own, and much later, the son of the boy had his little family too. Because of their friendship, the boy was successful and fulfilled, uh, and the tree grew wider and stronger, standing tall and beautiful in the forest for many, 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 many years, plus a few years even more than that. And as each generation played in her strong old branches, the tree often thought back to the fateful day when the boy had asked her for a house. In truth, she would have gladly given him her branches to build one. She would have given her, uh, given him her trunk to build a boat. She loved him that much. But when she, uh, but then she would have had nothing left, not for herself, not for anyone else. And there never would have been a home for the red squirrels. There would have been no hide-and-seek with the boys' grandchildren, no bakery with the best apple pies anyone ever tasted. Setting healthy boundaries is a very important part of giving. It assures you'll always have something left to give. And so the tree was happy, and everyone was. The end. Okay. So I know that you don't uh, know the original story, but essentially it doesn't go like that at all. It's, I'm curious. Uh, how does it go? Can you just give us the Reader's Digest version? Yeah, the boy, I mean, it begins with this cute interaction with the boy and the tree, and the tree eventually gives everything for the boy, everything that the boy asked for, and uh, it results in that kind of key question there about the the tree giving up uh, his or her entire self so the boy could build a house, and it's a a story, and, you know, by a lot of metrics, a pretty sweet story about sacrifice, and we were talking even early in the show about self-denial and what does that look like. Uh, but I'm I'm curious, and again, it's being a little cheeky, you know. It's uh-huh. trying to make trying to make a a modern point on a uh, on a book that's been around a little while. But I don't know. I'd be curious to know what you think of it. Yeah, I, it seems to be where it takes the churn is uh, needing to take you know make some boundaries uh, in order to be able to serve other people. There's something to be said about that, right? Like we give out of the overflow sometimes, and that's kind of the healthiest way to go about things. I am looking at some of the comments on this where people were not big fans of this book originally, <laughs> but um, yeah, it, it's uh, it, and it, it 
good creativity there too. I do think boundaries are important, right? Boundaries, we talk about that often. A lot of times, especially in close relationships and family relationships, when we don't have boundaries, uh, it grows in us bitterness and it grows in us an inability to, uh, it burns us out and all sorts of other things. So I suppose uh, something that gives us a sense of boundaries can't be all bad. Now, how about you? You you know this book. I'm sure you've loved this book. What'd you think of the change? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those, again, there's so many other directions we could go here because the you know the book has been around a while. So part of me wonders, are there things at play? They're like, well, okay, we know things now that maybe Shell didn't know then or culture has shifted differently now than it, than it was then. You know, the, the book, at least I recall it being kind of sweet. And so there's the boy taking the branches. And then as an older man, uh, he wants the trunk to make a boat. And so it's, a, it's this pretty sad picture where it says, and so the boy cut down a trunk and made a boat and sailed away. And the tree was happy, but not really. And it's just a picture of a stump. It says, and after a long time, the boy came back again. He said, I'm sorry, boy, said the tree. I have nothing left to give and kind of explains all the things that uh, have gone. And said, I don't need very much now, said the boy, just a quiet place to sit and rest. I'm very tired. Well, said the tree, straighten herself up as much as she could. Well, an old stump is good for sitting and resting. Come, boy, sit down, sit down and rest. And the boy did. And the tree was happy. And it just ends with this picture of like an old man sitting on just the stump that's left Uh. from the tree, which does have some sentimental strength to it. But I think part of what he's getting after here is that actually does not set up any kind of expectation or parameters for like a healthy give and take relationship. And I think even though it's a little cheeky, right. And is trying to make a point in a, I think a pretty creative way, I think it raises some really, some really interesting issues. I'd love to know what you think about adapting something like that, that was written so long ago in a kind of a different time, like, is there, is there value to that, that kind of art or adaptation? Oh, I think so. Because it catches your, uh, gets your attention, right? Like you've got to cut through the noise somehow. So if you just said, Hey, I I want to talk about boundaries, you know, it might be click. I'm I'm not going to get on that one, but uh, if, especially for people who know and love this story to see it creatively change like that, yeah, that's going to grab your attention. It's kind of how we talk about sermon writing, right? Like Mm -hmm. people who are great storytellers and can hold people's attention, uh, is important. So I think this type of adaptation, I think it's really creative and I think it's a, it's a cool thing. And we'd love to know what you think. This is posted up on our Facebook page and even in the comment section of some of these original posts, although a bunch of people have posted it now. Some are saying, yeah, no, this is the original was a depiction of like true love and sacrifice. And other people saying, oh, the original was downright harmful and toxic. And uh, I'd love to know what you think, especially about something held so dear, like a children's book. Where does this hit you? What do you agree with? What do you disagree with? You can weigh in. As always, over on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. And that is one more day in the books, Brian. We made it. We had some wonderful guests, some great articles. We hope that you'll join us again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins, and you have been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.